Well, we made it. Um, my wife and I are expecting a baby very soon here. And this baby is like ready to go any day. And I told my wife, he can come, just not Saturday night or Sunday. And so we've made it this far. So I am super glad to be with you all this morning as we wrap up our series called Unoffendable. And the kind of the theme of this series is people are going to do offensive things. We can't control that, but we can control our response to offense. And I really think that if we can have the right mindset, if we can have the right heart space, then we don't have to be offended, or at least as as we work through whatever hurt we might be feeling. Now, over the course of the last few weeks, we've kind of talked about, like, how do you deal with offense when somebody cuts you off in traffic or they make a mean joke, whatever. Like, that, that happens. But as I was working through this passage in the Bible that we'll be talking about this morning, it just really hit me. Like, this is no light matter. This isn't just a little bit of hurt that the Bible is teaching us to deal with. Now, this is about some of the big things in life. And so the saying that was kind of playing through my head is that the people that you love the most can hurt you the deepest. And so the question that I wanted to wrestle with this morning is how do we respond when we are hurt deeply? Like when a few years back, before I came to Bridgewater, I was going through seminary and I was gaining a little bit of ministry experience over the summer. And there's this ministry leader that I really looked up to and respected. And over the course of that summer, there was a time when he told me that maybe I should rethink going into ministry because I just didn't do a very good job of loving people. And that's really what ministry is all about. And I took that really hard. Like if that was anybody else off the street being like, ah, hey, maybe ministry isn't for you, it wouldn't get to me so deeply. But because I cared about this person and I respected their opinion, it really got to me. And now that I'm married, I know that there is nobody who could ever hurt me more than my wife because there's nobody that I have a closer relationship with than my wife. And there's other close relationships that I have, whether it's with my friends, my extended family members, some of the people that I work with. Those are the people who could hurt me the deepest. But what about you? I'm sure that you have close people in your lives, whether it's family members, kids, friends that you've been close with for a while. And even those people in our lives that we're really close with, sometimes they do things that really hurt us. So then how do we respond? Do we just cut off that relationship, just burn the bridge? Or how do we work through that hurt? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I think the best way that we can answer this question is to look at the example of God. And I think sometimes we forget that God experiences emotions just like we do. Maybe you could be like, ah, is it even worth it to look at the example of God? Because God just does everything perfect. I mean, he's just got things all together. So that's not even a perfect comparison. But the truth is, God experiences emotions like grief. He experiences emotions like anger, love, hatred. And 
even when God experiences those emotions to the fullest extent, he always responds in the perfect way. There is no error in the way that God goes about doing things. And so I think that this is a really good example for us to learn from. So we're going to look at a story this morning about God's relationship with the nation of Israel. Now, if you've been coming to church for a while, you might be like, ah, what's this big deal with Israel? It seems like half of the stories that we talk about in the Bible have to do with Israel. Well, that goes back to what is said in the book of Deuteronomy, where God chose the nation of Israel to be his special people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God chose the nation of Israel to be his special people, not because they were a big nation, not because there was a special, they were a special nation, not because they could offer to God anything that God needed. God just chose this nation to be his special people out of his love for them. And he rescued them out of, the nation, out of uh, slavery in Egypt so that he could show his love to these people. And after he rescued them from Egypt, God made a covenant with them. Basically this agreement that if they were to worship God alone and follow in his ways, then God would bless them. But the flip side was also true. If they were to worship false gods and rebel against God's ways, then God said that he would raise up an enemy nation to defeat them and take them into captivity. And God would remove his blessing from their lives. And so for a while over the course of history, the nation of Israel did pretty good, like following in God's ways, worshiping him alone. But there were other times when they fell away from that and they started worshiping false gods and rebelling against God's commandments. And the story that we're going to be looking at this morning was during a time when the nation of Israel was worshiping a false god named Baal. Now the name Baal means Lord. And they believed that this was the god of fertility. They believed that this god was in control of the weather, that he controlled the seasons, that he would be the one who would give them abundant crops. And this god, Baal, would later become like the Greek god, Zeus. And then the equivalent of Zeus for the Romans was Jupiter. But all of these gods kind of traced back even earlier to this god, Baal. And this God, Baal, was worshipped in some pretty messed up ways. Like, they, this God was worshipped through temple prostitutes and even child sacrifice. It's pretty messed up. And the nation of Israel was just as guilty of worshipping this false God 
in this way, after they had made an agreement to God that they would worship him and follow him alone, after God had shown his incredible love to these people, they turned away from God and they start worshiping this false God. And so we're going to look at a story this morning about how God responds to the nation of Israel when they've totally just turned their back on him and they're grieving God. They're stirring up anger in God's heart because of their rebellious ways. But as we track through this story this morning, and if we're going to follow God's example, then I think the example that we're going to see is that we should choose radical love over self-preservation. This is a story that is about God's radical love for the nation of Israel, even though they have turned away from him and they're just hurting him with the way that they are living their lives. So if you'd like to follow along with me, we are in the book of Hosea. Book of Hosea. We'll also have it up here on the screen. We'll be in chapter one, starting in verse two. So... This is a story about God speaking through a prophet named Hosea. As a prophet of God, God would speak to him and he would deliver God's message to the Israelite people. And so in verse 2 it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, you might be like, hold on, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing that God would say. Go marry a promiscuous woman. Go marry somebody who is sexually loose. That's not the kind of advice that you would go give your kids when, you, when your kids are ready to date. And so you're like, could this really be what God is saying? Why would God tell him to do this? Well, the truth is that, that God is setting up basically a sermon illustration for the Israelite people to show them just how rebellious and unfaithful they are to God. Now, as somebody who has the privilege of speaking on Sunday mornings, I get to come up with sermon illustrations. And this dog right here has served me very well in the past for sermon illustrations. Yeah, we had to try out this, like, baby carrier, and he was the, the victim. But, um, so I get a lot of sermon illustrations out of him. I'm also super excited to have kids. I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of sermon illustrations from them. And the nice thing is I get to pick out my sermon illustrations from my life events in order to clarify what God says in his word. But things were a little bit different for Hosea. He didn't pick out his sermon illustrations. Instead, God arranged the circumstances of his life so that the circumstances of his life would be like a sermon illustration to the people of Israel. And so Hosea is being called to marry a promiscuous woman to be a sermon illustration to the fact that the nation of Israel is unfaithful to God. And it's not just his wife, that's a sermon illustration, but God is also using his children. So in verse three, it says, so he married Gomer, which I'm sorry, but if your name is Gomer, like this probably means you're bad news, all right? So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, 
And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So Hosea marries this woman named Gomer. Together they have a son. And now they weren't flipping through a book of baby names trying to figure out what to name their son because God gave them the name for their son. God wanted their son to be named Jezreel. Now that name is significant because it is the name of a valley within the geography of Israel. And there was a pretty significant event that took place in the valley of Jezreel. So rewind a little bit in Israel's history. And there was this king named Ahab. And Ahab was the most wicked king to ever rule over Israel. And he led the people to worship this false god, Baal, and to do some pretty messed up and wicked things. And then Ahab died in battle, and his son, Joram, sat on the throne of Israel. Now, Joram was also a pretty bad guy, and they continued to worship this false god, Baal. So then God raised up this man named Jehu to deal out judgment on Joram and all the other descendants of Ahab because of their wickedness and because of their idol worship. And so Jehu wipes out the entire household of Ahab. And for a while, that kind of puts an end to the worship of this false god. But now what God is saying to Hosea is the current generation of Israel, the descendants of Jehu, they're following in the ways of Ahab. They've just turned right back to idol worship. And now they are worthy of God's judgment because of their wickedness. And so the name Jezreel is symbolic of God's judgment. And then Hosea and Gomer have two more kids that also have significant names. In verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Rumah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Rumah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Loamai, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So let's just kind of recap the names of Hosea's kids. First, he has a son named Jezreel, which is symbolic of God's judgment. Then he has a daughter named Lo-Rumah, meaning not loved, symbolic of the fact that God is saying He's not loving the nation of Israel. And then we have another son named Loamai, meaning not my people. Now maybe you're like, hey, wait a minute. I thought you said that this was a story about God's love for the nation of Israel. I thought we were talking about how we should respond when people hurt us deeply. Because if we stop right here, what it sounds like is if somebody hurts us, we should just cut off that relationship. We can just judge them for their wrongdoing. 
And maybe you're like, sweet, I can do that. But hold on, all right, because this story is not done yet. This just gives us a window into how deeply hurt God is because of the Israelites' sin. In verse 10, we have kind of a turnaround here. And God says, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And what God has is, is given us here is a picture of reconciliation for the nation of Israel. I think he's talking about end times here, a future day when the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, which were separated at that point, would come together under the rule of one leader. And that one leader, I believe, is none other than Jesus. And he's given a picture of people who were once rebellious towards him, who were once his enemy, now united and part of God's spiritual family. And then if we were to skip ahead a little bit to chapter 2 and verse 23... God says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And so God is taking the names of Hosea's kids and kind of flipping them around to say, they've really hurt me but I will love these people. They've rebelled against me, but I will continue to pursue them for them to be my people. And so God made a way for reconciliation for the people who were once his enemies to draw near into a close relationship with him. Now, let's go back to the story about Hosea here. So he gets married to Gomer, has a bunch of kids, and we don't know all the exact details of the rest of the story, except that his wife stayed true to her character. She was a promiscuous woman when he married her, and she just became an adulteress after their marriage. And so we don't know all the details, but what we do know is that she is no longer living under the same roof as her husband, and she's going after all these other lovers. And so God shows up to Hosea and says to him, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love sacred raisin cakes. Now you'd think Hosea's life is probably a whole lot better off without this woman. I mean, she's... She's hurt him in probably one of the most awful ways that somebody can hurt another person. I mean, marriage is the most intimate relationship, and she completely forsakes that in favor of just fulfilling her desires with other people. And God is saying to Hosea, go pursue your wife. Don't just burn that bridge. 
Love her with an unconditional love. Even though she has hurt you, continue to love her. Because again, this is kind of a sermon illustration for God's love for the people of Israel. God doesn't need anything from the nation of Israel. It's not like they make God's life better. And the nation of Israel had just turned their back on God. They were chasing after these false gods, which is kind of a picture of adultery and going after these other lovers instead of being faithful to God. But God is saying, I will continue to love them. God persevered in his love for the nation of Israel. So then going back to the story of Hosea, there's a little bit more going on. In verse two, it says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way toward you. So again, we don't know all of the details of this situation going on here, but what we do know is that Hosea's wife was up for sale. I mean, it's possible that she got herself into debt and the only way to pay off of her debtors was to sell herself into slavery. We don't know for sure if that's the case, but what we see is that Hosea is buying back his wife. And this isn't just costing Hosea financially. I think this is costing him emotionally too. This wife who left him he is making a personal sacrifice to bring her back out of his love for her. And this is a picture of God's love, again, for the nation of Israel, that God redeemed his people. He bought back his people. But what does this mean for us? How does it, what does it look like for us to follow the example of God here? I think... There is a lot to learn from the example of God, but what really hit me with this story is that, honestly, I think we relate a lot more to the Israelite people than we do to God. We relate to the people who have turned their back on God and follow in rebellious ways and are the recipients of God's love. And God loved the Israelite people and he also has demonstrated his love for all of us here in this room. Because at one point in our lives, we were all enemies of God because of the sin in our lives. And God made a way for us to be reconciled to him through sending his only son, Jesus, to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our wrongdoing so that if we believe in him, we could be forgiven. And if we have the forgiveness of God, then that sin in our lives is no longer a barrier between us and a relationship with God. And we can go from being enemies of God to being part of God's spiritual family. And so God reconciled us and God also, he redeemed us through Jesus. He bought us back. The Bible says that before we are part of God's spiritual family, we are living in bondage to sin. And Satan is our master. And now, when I, before I became a Christian, I didn't think that Satan was my master. I thought I was just living for myself. 
But the truth is I was in bondage to sin and Satan was my master, but Jesus paid the price for our sins so we could be bought out of that life of slavery and have a new life in Jesus. And God loves us with a persistent love because even if you are a Christian, even if you've been forgiven by Jesus, the truth is we all continue to mess up. We all still sin. But God says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God continues to love us even when we sin. Now there's this story in the New Testament where Jesus was teaching in the temple and the religious leaders brought this woman to Jesus who was caught in the act of idolatry. And they said to Jesus in front of all of the people, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of idolatry and according to the law of Moses, she needs to be stoned to death. And they said this to Jesus because they wanted to trap Jesus in his words. They wanted to put Jesus in a situation where if Jesus said, all right, let's go ahead and stone her, then they would accuse Jesus of having a double standard Because Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. They say, you would stone this woman to death, but still you'd give a free pass to these other people. And then if Jesus said, no, we're not going to stone her, then they would say, now you're guilty of breaking the law of Moses, which is really the law of God. So this is kind of a tricky situation for Jesus. And then Jesus stoops down And he uses his finger to write something in the dirt. And we don't know what Jesus was writing in the dirt. Some people think that Jesus was writing the sins of the other people who were in that crowd. Or maybe writing down the names of people that they had had affairs with. But then when Jesus stood up, Jesus said to everyone, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And it says that every single one of those people turned around and walked away. And I think they walked away because the truth of Jesus' words hit them. They realized that just like that woman, they were worthy of being on the other end of judgment because they had sin in their lives. Now, what about us? When somebody has wronged us, if somebody has hurt us deeply, are we going to, in a sense, pick up our stones to judge them for their wrongdoing? Or are we going to recognize that because of the sin in our lives, we deserve to be on the other end of judgment? But even with that being the case, God has showed us his love by offering a way of reconciliation, offering a way to redeem us through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross. God loves us with a persistent love. And so the question is, can we love other people with the love that God has shown us? And to that woman, Jesus said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. And Jesus isn't just giving a free pass on sin. 
Jesus would pay for her sin on the cross. The truth is Jesus has paid for our sin on the cross. And now it's up to us. Are we going to love people even when they hurt us with the kind of love that God shows? Or are we going to try to judge people for their sins? And so how can we love people? Just really quick, when people act like your enemy, love requires reconciliation. I think it takes two people to truly have reconciliation, but you can do your part so that if that person is in the right heart space to make things right, you've already gotten your heart in the right place so that things can be made right. And then secondly, when people act like your enemy, love requires redemption. Now, what I mean by that is just when people hurt you and that relationship is broken, it comes at a cost to make things right again. That might be a cost of emotional energy. Maybe it's a cost of time. Maybe you have to lay aside things like pride and selfishness. But redemption costs something. And are you willing to make that payment to bring back that relationship, to make things right? And then lastly, when people act like your enemy, love requires perseverance. I think this is talking about an unconditional love that even when people hurt you, it's not like one, two, three strikes, now I can't love you anymore. It doesn't mean you have to put yourself in a position to be hurt over and over again. But I think what this means is not putting a cap on our love because that's the example of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your incredible love that you have shown us. God, we don't deserve that at all. Uh, we really are like the Israelite people who chase after lesser things, and we don't give you the devotion that you deserve. But God, I thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, you still loved us, and you made a way for us to know you as our Savior not just in this life, but for all of eternity. And that's so beyond what any of us deserve. And I ask that when other people hurt us, that the truth of the gospel would just collide with our hearts, that we would know uh, <laughs> that we can't throw stones at another sinner because we are just as worthy of judgment. But God, help us to show love and forgiveness to others. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.